There are only three stages remaining in the 2021 Tour de France, and I'm sure you know who is going to win every single one of them. Of course you do, you're a hardcore Tour de France fan. Well, if you think you know who's going to win tomorrow's stage, you should play our VeloNews Stage Winner Challenge. You can sign up by going to velonews.com forward slash pick. What you do is you can pick the rider who you think is going to win tomorrow's stage. If you do, if you choose correctly, you can be entered to win an Outside Plus online subscription. You can also win the grand prize, a specialized Tarmac SL7 Comp racing bike by choosing the right winner. Uh, As we head in tomorrow, let's see here, stage 19, looking pretty flat. I'm gonna go with Mark Cavendish. I would go to villainous.com forward slash pick, write in Mark Cavendish, and if I was right, I'd be entered to win all sorts of good goodies. Anyway, it's the Velo News Tour de France stage winner challenge. Check it out, velonews.com forward slash pick. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Thursday midday. We just finished watching the final mountain stage of this year's Tour de France. Big hulking climbs through the Pyrenees, finishing up at Luz Ardiden, a finish that we've seen so many times before in the Tour de France. And I am so pleased today on the podcast to uh, welcome back a co-host, a man who's been on this podcast many times. Uh, It's Andrew Hood. Andrew and I are going to break down what we saw on the stage today. Then the second half of the show, I have an interview with Nate Wilson. Nate is one of the performance managers at EF Education Nippo, but he's also just been a coach and a rider in the U.S. cycling scene in a long time, and he has crossed paths as a coach and a rider with a lot of the guys who are racing in the Tour de France. And Nate has some great perspective on the development pathway to the Tour de France and how it's changed in recent years. Really psyched to have Nate on the pod. But before we get to that, he's calling in from a Hors category or category hotel somewhere in Po, France, beyond category hotel. It's Andrew Hood. Thanks for uh, thanks for making time for the podcast, Andy. It's good to see you again, Fred. We've been uh, communicating virtually for several weeks now, so we can do a Zoom call. Yeah, I know. It's just not the same over WhatsApp and over Slack and pinging emails to each other. Something about having seeing your face on the screen, Andy. It uh, it makes me happy. It makes me feel like I'm at this year's Tour de France instead of being in my spare bedroom that has gotten increasingly messy as the Tour de France has gone along. Yeah, we miss you, Fred. It's been uh, you know the second year of the COVID tour. Uh, we're getting through it fairly well, but it's it's uh, you know it makes for some interesting work conditions. But I tell you, the driving and the bad hotels and the bad coffee, that has not changed Uh, pre and post COVID. That is part of the tour experience. Oh, never change, France. Never change. I know I'm bummed to not be over there, too, but I've really appreciated some of the rundowns you and James have been doing about um, the media infrastructure at the tour under COVID and, you know, what access is like and how bad it can be and how how much harder you have to work to get original content. And I, I hope that it is helped illuminate some of the the listeners and the readers out there about, you know, how a lot of the content that you see going up on cycling websites, you know, not a ton of it is original content. And when you actually do see original stuff, including some of the stuff that Andy's been putting up there, like uh, it's the product of a lot of hard work and a lot of hustle. And uh, I appreciate you guys getting that point across. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting working. I mean, the, the same protocols that were in place last year, Fred, are still in place this year. Like, for example, this morning, you know, we had this Byron uh, Victoria story break. And, you know, the journalists were lined up waiting for the bus to pull into the team paddock. But that's as close as we could get. 
you know, back in the old days, you know, it'd be like massive scrum around that bus. You know, that that would have been one of the old school Tour de France scrums this morning. But we were all through safety protocols and social distancing. We were all kept in our little cages in the what they call the big zone. So it was very surreal today. It's kind of a repeat of the past of, you know, something was blowing up with police raids. The tour, we don't see that very often anymore. But in this context of COVID, we're all just waiting uh, for the riders to file through. And, and actually, quite a few spoke. And we were kind of uh, pleased by that because we just thought they would all just blank us and go straight by and not say anything. Yeah. How happy do you think that uh, Bahrain Merida PR guy was sitting on the bus, just like looking out the window at all these journalists who have like their questions and want to ask him stuff. And it's just like, bup, 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 see you later, guys. Vroom. Well, the funny thing was there, there is a new uh, guy doing PR for the team. It's his very first race. And they sent him into the media zone first to field the questions. Like, man, that's kind of that's kind of tough. And none of the, none of the none of the at least I didn't see any of the managers or the sport directors come into the media area. It was just some of the writers. We talked to Mohoric, we talked to Cobrelli, Peo Bilbao, and uh, Wout um, uh, Pools. And they all, you know, they were all they, they did the right thing. They, they you know they talked to us and gave their point of view about the thing. But it was. Um, you know, I, I did see on, on one, I won't say which channel it was, but, uh, you know, the TV gets the first dibs. And so when the Wild Pools goes through, they just ask him, hey, how's it feel to be in the pink jersey or the polka dot jersey? Not even not even any questions about the story du jour. <laughs> oh, TV reporters never change. France never change. I love it. Everyone kind of playing their role and the poor print guys getting uh, getting pushed off to the side even further. It's just like... The way it's always been only sort of accentuated with things. Um, Hoodie, I, I have a bunch of questions I want to get to today. You know, we saw Pogacar take a big old summit finish, third stage win of this year's tour. Um, we saw the Skytrain mount one final gasp up to Luzardi then to try and set Richard Carapaz up, but it did absolutely nothing. Um, after the stage, Pogacar, it sounds like the media was finally... Um, took out its knives and started asking him some tough questions, everything about the police raid to uh, his thoughts on his team manager, Gianetti, who was like, you know, part of the old uh, Ricardo Rico doping teams um, of 15 years ago and had kind of his own checkered past. But before we get to that, I mean, I want to ask you about this this police investigation into the hotel at uh, that Bahrain Victorious was staying in, because like... First of all, you're in Poe right now, which, of course, has this storied history uh, from 20 years ago. It seemed like whenever there was a police raid or some sort of like doping kerfuffle, it happened in Poe. But, um, you know, take me through the day, like as you find, how do you learn about this? And like, how does a story like this make the rounds in the the COVID um, press corps at the tour now? Yeah, it was interesting, you know, now in the, in the time of uh, what's up and just communicating uh, with people. I mean, I got a message late last night from a source just saying, uh, you know, Hoodie, we're hearing rumors of police raids. And this was quite late last night. So I didn't send any messages to some of my other sources trying to confirm this information until this morning. And much to my dismay, my competitor in cycling news beat me to the punch and uh, scooped us on that story this morning. And, they, you know, but, you know, once the cat is out of the hat, you know, it's like uh, it's, a, it's a feeding frenzy. So then you're working your sources, you're calling people, you're trying to get some um, confirmation and updated information. And then today it's quite good. Actually, journalists do share information, you know, with the French. You know, I know a French journalist and he's helping me with some information. 
Um, but again, you know, very limited in terms of what we can do. I mean, uh, like even right now with COVID, uh, they don't tell us where the hotels are because they don't want the media just in general going to the hotels because it's all part of this bubble. So we're frantically trying to find out, you know, where is the Byron uh, team hotel? And we found it out, but then it was, by the time we figured that out, it was, um, it was too, you know, they were already on the way to the start. So uh, we rolled into the start. And like I said, you know, they rolled into the paddock area, completely off limits. Uh, but, you know, that whole story, you know, it's evolving. I was just getting another tip uh, recently about some other information. So it's all a process of, you know, getting this information and, and then trying to confirm it that it's true, which is also the second part of any good story, right? Right. And I mean, that's so different from in years past where you would have a race Bible for the media that would list the hotels. Like you would know where these teams were staying. You could go there, you know, hang out outside the team bus, harass people, do what your, you know, your God-given gift as a journalist is, which is entitled curiosity and to be able to go there and ask questions and, and do what you have to do. But now, um, you know, and we haven't, we have yet to see what this story is going to produce. The writers seem to say, Hey, you know, nothing to see here, move along, move along. But, um, you know, cops raiding hotels that is that harkens back to the bad old days of cycling. I mean, what can you say about some of the memories that this brought up about being at the Tour de France and hearing about, you know, police going into hotel rooms? Yeah, I mean, it kind of, I was speaking to a, a, a colleague of mine who has been around longer than I have. And, uh, you know, we were reminiscing just about the Festina affair. I think that was my second or third tour. And that's when, you know, really that was the mother of all police raids because these were real police raids. They were going in and arresting guys. There are the stories of people, you know, the riders jumping out of windows, trying to escape the police and, you know, people flushing the goodies down the, down the toilets and, you know, people were just being caught red handed with doping products. And, um, and, uh, you know, in those days there was still no, there was still no, you know, it wasn't, it was kind of, pre, you know, very early days of cell phones, you know, the, the old text messaging with the old Star Trek kind of, little Nokia phones. And so, you know, it was real difficult to get information. You get some information and the only way to confirm that information was to go there. So you'd be driving around all in the middle of France in the middle of the night, going to some lotto hotel. And then there would just be dozens of cops there and dozens of media, people running around with, with their uh, TV cameras and journalists trying to find out. And they're like, Oh, there's a raid over at the Festina. And then we'd all drive over there. And then, um, but those were the real good old days when it came to doping scandals. And then, of course, we're remin reminiscing also about the Poe and how it's kind of been this kind of ground zero for so much of, uh, of the big scandals that kind of hit, hit, hit the headlines back in the day. I mean, this is where Armstrong had some of his famous uh, press confrontations where he would just sit there and just deny and deny, deny against the questions, the queries from the media. This is where the Rasmussen story unraveled. This is where Vinukarov. We were laughing. There was actually a press conference, I think it was David Miller. They were doing some new, uh, announcing some new co-sponsor for, uh, you know, he was on a different team, but he, they, were, they were announcing some little co-sponsor to, you know, save the whales or protect the babies, whatever it was. And then everyone started seeing the message that Vinukarov had just tested positive for uh, blood doping, you know, on a different team. It wasn't Miller's team, but right in the middle of the press conference, someone said, hey, David, do you have a quote about Vinukarov testing positive? blood doping 
So it all seems to happen in pro, and man, it, get, it did it good today. Uh, oh, never change cycling. Again, never, never, ever change. Yeah, I was wondering if something like that was going to happen as you guys were heading to Poe, because it does have this storied um, history. And like, you know, the tour goes to Poe every single year. I can walk the streets of Poe and know where I'm going because I've been to the Tour de France that many times. It's one of those strange places like Gap or Annecy, where it's just sort of year in, year out, you know, you're going to end up staying in a hotel there. Um, let's get to another question I had for you about, you know, the, sort of the media side of today's stage is the fact that, you know, it's this big hulking Pyrenean stage with a big old grinding summit finish. And oftentimes when there are big summit finishes like this, they do not put the press room at the top of the summit. You have to like choose whether you want to go to the press room or you want to go to the finish line. And now with the COVID rules, it sounds like, you know, it doesn't really make any sense to go to the finish line because you're not going to get any access anyway. So like, how did you decide what to do today um, and how would that be different from what you would have done in years past? Yeah, I mean, today the, 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 um, the, the press room was 25 Ks from the finish line. Uh, so that makes it pretty tough to uh, get up to the finish line. And then, um, you know, sometimes they'll have the, the press room at, at the bottom of a big mountain of your teleferic or a big uh, gondola car that takes you to the top. Um, but then the question is, you know, you get to the top of these mountains and, and no, no one will even speak to you. So it kind of sometimes like, why, why am I going to go up there and, and, and stand in the rain for three hours waiting for absolutely nothing? Um, so, yeah, the way, the way we're reporting and, and covering some of these things is changing, especially in COVID. We're just hoping by next year that, the word is, you know, if everybody's vaxxed up and and uh, COVID is back in in a bottle, that we can uh, get back to, uh, you know, at least being able to be able to talk to more people. I mean, the biggest frustration really here is not being able to talk to the sport directors, talk to the coaches, talk to all the support staff that provide so much more layers and context to what's really going on in the race. Because, you know, you get the rider at the finish line, you know, they're not going to say too much. Um and, you know, they, 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 their perspective is very different than, than sometimes the sport directors have a little more tactical take on what's going on. Yet, despite these clamp down media rules, which, yes, are nominally aimed at COVID, but also seem to um, have an impact on your guys' ability to report real stories and sort of more sensitive and tougher stories. Sounds like today in the press conference, um, people finally started to ask uh, Bogachar some harder questions about, you know, A, the police, the police investigation, what he thought of that. But B, about his thoughts on uh, his team manager, Gianetti, this guy, you know, he's been in the sport forever. I believe he won Liege-Bastogne-Liege during sort of the peak of the doping era. And then, you know, he was part of this, uh, what was it, the Prodeer team that um, Ricardo Rico, uh, Pipoli, and Kobo raced for where there were some uh, multiple, you know, doping um, investigations with in sort of the early 2000s. Um, he's a person who I know, you know, when I've talked about Pogacar and UAE team Emirates, people have pointed at Giannetti and said, hey, you know, this guy's involved with this team at a pretty high level. He has a pretty checkered past. Like, I know that we're, you know, in this new age of cycling with biological passports and where, you know, the assumption is that most of the peloton is clean, but some of these guys who are holding on from, you know, who are still holdovers from the that, that era of cycling are still in the sport and they've pointed to him. You know, take us through, um, you know, how this question was asked, Pogajar's response, and then what the response from media was around it. Yeah, it, it, this this has kind of been the elephant in the room, really, hasn't it, Fred, about Pogachar and, and just performances. I mean, uh, in fairness to the current team, um, you know, they have a very uh, transparent uh 
medical and coaching staff in place right now with uh, UAE. They, you know, they follow all the rules like everybody else does. You know, sources are telling us that, you know, they have a pretty strict way of screening people coming into the team for riders. And, and they do, uh, you know, they, they follow all the, the rules. So there's been, but there has been some people to make that link between Janetti and his past into what, you know, what's happening on this team right now. And I mean, you know, some will say that's an unfair question, but some, some will say it's a very legitimate one. And, you know, finally someone asked it in the press conference today. We've been skirting it. You know, when do you, you know, sometimes, you know, when do you ask that question? Because I've been trying to get an interview with Janetti all year and he wouldn't talk to us at Bell News. And I know other journalists were trying as well. And, um, you know, so sometimes as, as a journalist, you don't want to ask that question at a press conference because then the whole press room gets the answer. Um, you know, so sometimes you want to try to beat your rifles and you want to get that on, the, on a sidebar conversation. But they, you know, they basically hadn't, Janetti, I haven't even seen Janetti. We saw him last year at the tour riding his bike a few days, but we never, never see him hanging around, um, you know, the race. We never see him. He's at the race. We just, he's never really around the media. And, and another guy that's kind of disappeared like that is Brailsford. He used to be real uh, vocal and, and open to the media. He never, you know, since all this Jiffy Bag stuff started a couple of years ago, he is just very difficult to get a hold of, of, of Brailsford. He will not talk to the media anymore. Um, but the question came up in a press conference today. Someone just asked him straight up, you know, what do you think about, are you having any misgivings about your association with uh, Gennady and considering his past? And of course, you know, Pagata, 23 years old, uh, you know, uh, Gennady had already finished racing by the time he was, he was a baby. So, you know, Pagata just gave his answer, said, you know, the past is the past. And I have absolutely no, you know, he, he said that, um, he said, it doesn't really affect me doesn't you know what what happened in the past is the past he can't change it um we are in fact as we're speaking right now waiting for some um additional information from the team if they want to kind of address that larger question but um yeah i mean he you know it's the peloton these days there's still quite a few of those people around i mean bjarne reese was perhaps the most public but i guess the difference between reese you know who who won the tour and he confessed that he used the epo to win in 1996 and supposedly turned the page, but he was all very public about it. I mean, Bjarni never wanted to come out. It was kind of forced out of him by the media and by some pressure from some anti-doping people in Denmark. And he finally, you know, the pressure was so relentless that he just finally just said, well, I'm just going to confess and move on in my life. Uh, But a lot of other people that are still active in the Peloton, you know, haven't had that reckoning either publicly or legally. Um, So I think Gennady kind of falls into that second category. I mean, some of his teams that's Tori has doping uh, cases and publicly they've always disassociated themselves with those riders. I mean, Rico, uh, Pia Poli, you know, they tested positive 2008 for Sarah, you know, that new bow, you know, they left that tour in 2008. And then 2011, when it was Geox was a sponsor, uh, you know, Kobo won the Welta, beat a guy named Chris Frome. And then what was it? Two years ago, they finally uh, took through his biological passport and disqualified Kobo and gave the win to to, uh, to uh, Froome. And, you know, Gennetti has never been, been answered those questions and never even had a chance, you know, a journalist even have a chance to ask him about that stuff. Yeah, it's one of those things where, um, you know, it's, it's obviously fair game to ask that question. And, you know, someone like Pogacar, his response is definitely of importance. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I go back and forth Though, when it comes to the reaction to the answer, which is that some people will obviously 
raise this up as a smoking gun that obviously Tante Pogacha must be dope to the gills and winning because he has, you know, baboon blood in him because, you know, he didn't besmirch, he didn't, you know, talk smack on Mara Gianetti when given the chance to and, you know, asked a question about it. And um, other people will say, eh, no big deal. You know, this is a guy who had a checkered past. But again, you know, his racing career ended before Pogacha was even born. And, you know, and then there'll be people who say, well, Pogacha, he's such a big star. He has the chance to decide whether he can ride. Why doesn't he distance himself from these types of people? And these are worthy points to bring up and definitely worthwhile conversations to be had. But like, I feel like how you come down personally in this conversation says a bit more about you than it does about someone like Tate Pogacar or even Mario Giannetti. You know, Mario Giannetti's been in the sport for 30, 40 years. And oftentimes it's the people who've been in the sport for 20, 30 years who are able to put teams together. You know, he's not like a hired gun DS or like, you know, a coach or someone like that who can be kind of hired and fired and gotten rid of. Like, He's the proverbial Jonathan Vodders here who's, you know, finding the sponsor, organizing the team structure, like really working as a manager to put something like a team together. You have to have integral knowledge of how a team works and what everyone's role is and hiring and firing. And like that stuff just comes from experience and longevity in the sport. And we're not long enough away from the doping era where you can root people who have that sort of institutional knowledge out of the sport just yet. I feel like maybe in another 20 or 30 years, like you'll be able to sort of do that. But, you know, the people who are the the real sort of nuts and bolts string pullers in these teams are there because they've been doing it a long time and they have a ton of experience. And even now in 2021, when you're looking for people who have a lot of that experience, chances are you're going to find someone who raced or was a manager or was doing something in the era of, of doping. That's not to excuse it. It's absolutely not to excuse, you know, potentially, allegedly what Mauro Giannetti or his riders or whoever was up to at that era. But it's just sort of an explanation for why people like him are still uh, still around. A lot of those people from that era, you know, they say they've changed. And again, it's some of them have had to deal with that change very publicly uh, and really kind of come to terms with, uh, you know, what they've done in their own personal past and be very public about how they've committed to a, a new kind of cycling. And a lot of people have been, for whatever reason, be it the country they come from, kind of the culture that they're raised in, they haven't had to have that kind of a public uh, confessional that it seems like so many people want to hear that just for, if it's from their own satisfaction or to kind of, you know, square the, the, the balance of, of justice or something. But, you know, a lot of people are involved in this sport, like you said, that have been around a long time and they never had to go through that process. I guess the most important thing is, though, you know, is that they're on the right side of, of, of history now, right? That's what everyone's hoping. And I think a lot of the, you know, you, there's a lot of you know, this evidence and support in the sport to show that, you know, people can change and they have changed and that the sport has changed, I think, dramatically. And then, of course, the, the you know, the thing that's bad, I guess, is for guys like Pogaccia, you know, who simply is a freak. I mean, he is a freak. He's been winning since he was 17 years old. I mean, has that guy been doping since he was 15? I mean, probably not, you know, and he, he's been winning it throughout his whole career. So I think that what he's doing is not implausible. I mean especially in the context of this tour, you know, he, he took all of his time in two days, the time trial and his big attack on Grand Bournet. And since then, you know, he, he's not lost time and he's, he's been able to win these stages, but um, 
you know, the, the way he's winning, when you look at how Roglic crashed out and how some of the other riders were uh, crashed out and how he is just that kind of climber time trial uh, combination that his other rival, rivals don't have. Um, and Vingegaard, he's in second place. I mean, it's his first Tour de France. So that tells you the depth, really, of this tour. There, when you actually look at it, it's kind of like Cavendish in the sprints. When you actually look at the depth of the field of this tour, it's pretty thin. But I think if Roglic had been here, we would have a very, very different tour. Yeah, we had an interesting interview on the site today with Vodders himself, who was analyzing uh, Pogacar's huge lead, and he attributed it like you know a lot of us have, which is, hey, it was those that was that first week, week and a half, like the um, you know the couple of mountain stages that were held in really bad weather when people physiologically might not have been ready for it, and he was. But then also how the opening week of this year's Tour de France, instead of sort of you know smooth racing where people are at high level for the entire day it was like because of all the crashes was like start and stop and start and stop and start and stop and how physiologically that wears on people differently than if it had been sort of a more traditional tour de france where yes these opening stages are very hard but they're sort of the power profiles a little more even than if it's just like herky-jerky herky-jerky for seven or eight days and like you know that really wore people down in a different way and pogaccia has you know this opportunity to go for it it's cold it's rainy his, his rivals are out of of it and then boom he's able to like open this gap and you know when you're just looking at the results sheet you see this huge gap and it's very easy to start speculating about it but when you start to really dig into it and try to find reasons why that may be there are definitely reasons that speak to why you know he's six minutes ahead after 18 stages of racing yeah it was interesting too talking to riders uh i did a piece there today you know, a lot of people have just been saying, oh, this is the hardest tour to France ever. And, you know, riders say that every year. Every, every, every tour I've ever covered, every rider of week three is saying, oh, this is the hardest tour ever. But this year, it seemed like more actually saying that. So I started kind of asking around, like, why was it the hardest tour ever? And one reason that stood out was that first week, not only for the crashes and the way they was raced, but uh, the, the fact that uh, Vanderpool was in the race just for one week. I mean, Vanderpool raced the first part of the Tour de France, they said, like it was uh, the Tour of Flanders every day. And he was just balls out every day. Why? Because he knew he was pulling out, uh, you know, when they, once they got to the Alps. So he wasn't racing a three-week Grand Tour. He was racing a series of one-day races where he could just go to the absolute maximum. And he knew that he'd be out of the race and recovering by the next weekend. And so typically, you know, when you're racing a Grand Tour, it's part of the whole formula of a Grand Tour is to measure your efforts and stretch it out over three weeks. So they said that, that really made that first week way more intense than it normally would be. And plus, you know, as Vodders and you pointed out as well, that it was just a real hard first week. You know, you go through Brittany, you had three or four days, you know, those first two days were just like Liege, Baston, Liege. And then you had, you know, a couple of long stages that were more, more, you know, that one day, uh, Chateau Roux, I think it was uh, stage four. I mean, the first two hours, the average speed was 47 kilometers an hour for two hours because the break can never get away. So it's been all these things have added up. You're right. It's like Pogacar, just the things added up for him that day, especially in the, the first day in the Alps where, you know, Carapaz was the only guy that maybe could have stayed with him and he just blew his gasket and, and Pogacar just rode away from everybody. Yeah. And, you know, then the 
the teams that are there to challenge him just aren't as strong. And the team that's really coming to mind is Ineos Grenadiers. And we've talked about Ineos on the podcast a number of times over the last few days and how they've tried to do the old Skytrain, you know, tried it on Vontu and it's just not there. And, you know, Carapaz is not Chris Froome. He just, he doesn't, he's not at that level, but also like the, the pace and the strength of the collective of the team just doesn't seem to be where it's at. I mean, Hoodie, you've been there, you know, you're talking on the ground with other journalists and some sources here and there. Like, what are people saying? What have people been saying about Ineos Grenadiers during this Tour de France? I mean, are, are people kind of like chuckling at them? Like, eh, you know, even the Patriots lose the Super Bowl every now and again. Um, like, I'm really curious what the, the scuttle button word on the street has been around Ineos. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to get insider information out of Ineos. Um, I mean, especially now with, with this restrictions, but even just kind of, you know, uh, you know, Brailsford has clamped down. I mean, Nico, Nico Portal, you know, he passed away, you know, last year. I mean, he was really good speaking with the media and just kind of, he'd always just kind of give you some, you know, he would just kind of give you a feel of how things were going and, and just not having access to those, to those kind of support staff people that always kind of give you a little sidebar conversations to get a sense of how things were. But yeah, there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, the larger feeling is um, that, you know, the team is kind of in crisis mode, really. But that's kind of the buzz going around. There, there was a few things where, um, you know, I think that they're missing Portal. They're missing that kind of strong anchor inside the team car. You know, the sport director is, you know, you have your managers, you have your coaches, you have all these different people involved in the team. But, man, the sport director, you know, really kind of keeps together the core team. And with, the, you know, with the tragic death of Portal, I mean, that left a huge hole in that team. More so, I think, than anybody really has realized. And I think we're seeing that play out you know, these past two seasons, you know, without him really as a center of gravity. And then, you know, you don't have, you just don't have the Chris Froome type rider on that team anymore. Um, you see, when you have a guy like Pagatia, you know, the team rises to his level. So I think if you don't have that kind of figurehead to rise everyone, I think the overall level of the team kind of just goes down. You don't have that drive, that focus, that ambition that, you know, you're in there defending the yellow jersey. And there was a pretty good quote the other day. My Spanish colleague talked talk to Castro Viejo, and he was just saying that uh, he basically admitted, said, you know, we're not used to racing to chase a rival. You know, we're not used to racing from behind. We're used to racing at the front and controlling everything. Now we're trying to come over the top of another team and come over the top of a rival that's better than us. And he just basically said, you know, we're just not used to doing this. Yeah, and I mean, that's again what we saw today on the stage to lose Ardident. You know, you saw UAE Team Emirates riding very strongly, but you saw Ineos Grenadiers trying to do something, you know, trying to set Carapaz up on that win. We saw Teo Gegenhart uh, riding the front at the base of the climb to lose Ardident, um, climbing for a lot of it. You know, Castro Viejo was right up there. You know, you saw the team just putting in a lot of effort to try and whittle down that group. And they did, you know, they... They shredded the group down, but it, the group is like a lot bigger than you're used to seeing by the time the last Ineos Domestique pulls off to let uh, Carapaz do his thing. And, you know, I mean, Pogacar, he attacked and he 
you know, we saw a bit of a repeat of what we saw on Wednesday, which was Pogacar attacking, drawing, drawing out Vingago and Carapaz. And this time, Enric Mas was there. And uh, Enric Mas put in a little dig of his own, which was very cute before it just got, sm- got smashed. And uh, Pogacar, you know, accelerates to take his, his biggest win. But it's just, it's really strange to see these two teams at these very different times for them, where UAE Team Emirates, you know, on paper, you would never have looked at them and said, oh, they're going to be just as strong and as dangerous as Ineos. And then here they are, you know, being fairly even in some of these decisive moments of the race. Yeah, I, I saw an interesting, um, some interesting comments from Wiggins. Um, you know, he's here doing the TV for Eurosport. And man, I don't know if you've seen the photos of Wiggins walking around. I mean, he is a sight to behold. <laughs> he's walking around in his bomber jacket, you know, shaved skull, big beard. I mean, he's buffed out, man. He probably weighs, you know, 85 kilos. He's all buffed out with muscles. And he's, he's, he's just like a, he's like a freak out there. He's, he's great, though. I love uh, Wiggins. He speaks his mind. And he's been, uh, you know, he said he, he, said he saw, you know, Ineos, um, that uh, when uh, one of the riders, they were pulling and, and, you know, they didn't win or they didn't, uh, you know, the riders couldn't hold the pace in the, in this, in the train that, um, you know, they were laughing about it. They were like, oh, you know, didn't work out today. And uh, we have also seen some other, heard these reports and I don't know, name names, but, you know, of riders that were like stopping to take selfies with fans on Von during the, during the race. Um, another rider was supposedly, towing up a friend of his on a climb just because he was buddies, but it, it was someone who could potentially be, you know, a, a rival for the podium. You know, so there's like, there's like a, there's a discipline that's gone and an urgency and a direction and a purpose. And, and, and Wiggins was pointing this out. He said that he goes, when I was racing there, when Chris Froome was racing there, it was a very tightly drilled unit and everyone was on it and they were racing to win. And he says, and Wiggins pointed this out, that the team seems to have lost that urgency. Well, I mean, it will be interesting to see if that urgency comes back in 2022. If, if I mean, I assume they will be bringing Bernal back to the Tour de France. And, you know, look, Bernal, he looked great at the Giro d'Italia. Didn't look great for the entire race. He's kind of cracked there at the end. Um, but, you know, he is a guy who will give Pogacar on paper, a better run than Carapaz will. But still, I don't know. Like when I've been doing my sort of mental rundown of if I was drafting a team to take on the aliens at the Tour de France, what riders would I want? And I think I'd still go first with Pogacar. And I think I'd still go second with uh, Roglic over Bernal at this point. But, you know, throughout this this Tour de France, I have just been thinking in the back of my mind, okay, how does this look differently if, if Bernal is there. I think the margin is a lot closer, but I still think Pogacar is winning this race. Oh, I, I think I think that Pogacar is just going to absolutely crush Bernal next year in the Tour. I think that Pogacar will be so confident. His team will be better next year. And Bernal, I don't think, has the, the same physical or mental uh, kind of uh, mindset to, to, to take. He doesn't have that killer instinct in him. And I think Pogacar doesn't seem like he has the killer instinct, but he has the killer motor. And it's it's very easy right now for Pogachar to win. I mean, like today he said he was like enjoying the stage like a little kid racing at like a junior race because he was having so much fun racing. And here it is, stage 18 at the Tour de France. And he's just dropping everything. And then you saw the last two Ks. He just dropped everybody and just rode away. And I think he'll just absolutely crush um, uh, Bernal next year. 
And, I, you know, I think Roglic is the only guy really out there that can kind of go with him because po- Roglic has the, you know, he has a very strong character and he has the same skill set as, as, po- as, as Pogacar. But I, I just think we're just like, and this is guy, the guy's the new Eddie Merckx. He's just going to crush everybody. Um, you know, that we've been said, said that in the past, but I think this guy, the, you know, there's no no one coming up that's going to stop him. I mean, being a guy, you know, He's done great, but he's not going to beat Pogacar. Yeah, and I mean, when you think about that through the context of cycling history and this dominant era of Team Sky and Team Ineos and winning all these Tour de France, Tours de France, I think it's going to take a while for us to process what this year's Tour de France will ultimately mean for Sky and Ineos. Because, you know, like last year you could point to COVID and you could point to the disruption, but this year there's really no excuse. Okay. Yeah. Maybe some early crashes or whatever, but it really does seem like, uh, the page has been turned in the cycling history book and we're on to a new chapter. Yeah. It was interesting today in a ring that, 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 that good blog spot, uh, they put out this, uh, the, the guy dug into the, uh, Ineos, uh, budget cause you know, it's public record. And the team's budget, 50,000 euro, 50, 50 million euros annually. So, you know, when you do that to dollars, you know, what is that? That's another, uh, you know, that's another 20% when you do euro to dollar, you know, that's like 50, 55, 58 million, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of money to be spending on a bike team that I think probably won't be winning the Tour de France for quite a few years. <laughs> Well, again, you know, it's been a great Tour de France up to this point, but it's going to definitely leave us with some storylines to follow and pro cycling coming out of this. Uh, Well, Andrew Hood, I'm going to let you get back to your hotel there. But, you know, chapeau to you. You and James have done a great job on the ground over there. This is our final Tour de France podcast during the race. We are going to come at you next week and do some recaps and stuff like that. But, um, Andrew... Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for all the work you've done. It's been fun. I mean, the tour is always fun. Hopefully we'll see you here next year, Fred. We, you know, we, we did break down last night. We had a Dom Blanche in your honor. I'll send you the, I'll send you the uh, Instagram photo. I'll post it later on my website. We went to uh, a nice restaurant here in, in Poe. We always go to Le Berry. So we had the uh, Confit de Canal. And we had, uh, you know, we had uh, our, our Dom Blanche to uh, even had a cognac last night. I'll keep an eye out for the expense report for that one. Okay, let's hear from Nate Wilson. Okay, now on the podcast, it's Nate Wilson. Uh, Nate is a performance manager with EF Education Nippo. That's his actual title. But um, Nate, to me, is an interesting guy because you have worked with so many top American cyclists at critical points in their development over the years, and uh, I, I really wanted to have Nate on the podcast to talk about some of the big storylines we've seen in American cycling at this Tour de France. Nate, thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Fred. Appreciate it. Set the scene first. Where are you, Nate, right now? I know you're based in Spain, but like, um, where are you and what are you doing right now with the team? Yeah, so I'm in Andorra right now, actually. We do quite a few training camps here because our base is in Girona, so it's quite proximal, uh, and it's easy for us to get up here to get it to Andorra or to altitude, I mean. Uh, so we're staying high in Andorra and doing a couple weeks altitude camp with a few guys as they prepare for the races coming up in the second part of the season. 
Very cool. You know, Nate, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the ending of the American drought at the Tour de France. You know, it had been 10 years since we had our last American victory at the Tour. I mean, that's like an entire generation, maybe even a generation and a half. And uh, Sepkos won stage 15 the other day. And I'm curious, this is an American cyclist and, you know, a guy who's worked with all these cyclists. What did it mean for you to see um, you know, us finally having an American stage win at the tour. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really cool to see. You know, I think that's like uh, something everyone enjoys seeing. And I mean, American cycling is getting bigger and bigger, and we have more riders in the World Tour. Um, but at the same time, it's still a small enough group that I think everyone kind of knows each other and mainly roots for each other on some level. Um, but it was kind of funny because I remember seeing the stat right after Set One that it was this ten-year drought. And I mean, when I thought about it i i guess it made sense and i couldn't remember someone else winning a stage in the past 10 years because obviously they didn't but at the same time it really didn't feel like a drought i guess because uh, there's also been guys like uh tj being top five in the tour and talansky being top 10 in the tour and being always in the mix on stages and winning the dauphiné so so it was kind of funny it was one of those stats that i heard and is obviously it's true, but it actually sounded to me more dramatic than I've perceived uh, any drought. You know, like it, it doesn't feel like it's been a drought, I guess, is what I'm saying. That's fine. That's exactly what Book Walter said, because he was like, well, you know, you got to take you got to put this in perspective, which is we had some really good American cyclists at that time, but they were targeting GC. And so like, yeah, OK, you could look at the you know, this 10 year span without an American Tour de France win. But it's like, yeah, it's because the guys who were there were like not necessarily riding for stage wins at the tour. They were riding for a top GC placing. They were trying to, you know, trying to hang in that front group. And then the other guys like Brent and some of the other ones, like they had really specific jobs to do in service of some of these GGC guys like Cadell or TJ or whomever. So, you know, you can look at the stat and say, oh boy, that's sort of a, a dark, you know, era for American cycling. Or you can look at it and say, well, you know, there are really like racing specifics around that that's sort of... Yeah, I guess that's what I feel like. Like it's definitely super cool to see someone coming across the line with their hands in the air, but it also... Yeah, it, does, it doesn't feel like we haven't had Americans at the front of the race, I guess. So tell me your SEP story. So, you know, one of the things that has come out in my conversations with you is that like you have um, experiences either working with or networking with or being in close proximity to basically like every top American cyclist in the last, you know, like 10 years, either as teammates, you, you know, you were an action uh, Hoggins Berman guy or as, you know, working with as a coach or whatever. And it sounds like Sepp is one of these guys who was sort of in your orbit a bit uh, at, at a certain point. Yeah, that's that's kind of funny. That actually makes me think about what I say, like make, makes me feel like maybe I'm a bit of a name dropper or something. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sepp, uh, I definitely know. Uh, and we were at the University of Colorado in Boulder just after I'd stopped racing and was finishing my degree. And he was more or less beginning college. And yeah, we had a group of friends in common, more or less via collegiate mountain biking. So, I mean, I think our connection at the end of the day was social um, more than anything. But I also got to really enjoy going out on a lot of rides with him as much as I could. And uh, kind of, yeah, when when he told me he was interested in trying the road, I did 
whatever I could to help him, which I mean was not a lot. I think it was maybe sending a few emails and trying to find some teams he could guest ride for, which sounds kind of crazy. I think I read an article on Valonis the other day where like reading about these amateur teams looking back on how they like took a chance on this guy. So so it seems kind of crazy in hindsight that like it was still like trying to convince an amateur team to uh, take a chance on like some super talented young rider. The, that was the story that I wrote where I had multiple people saying, oh yeah, I got an email from Nate and you know, Nate's a great guy and he knows what he's talking about. And he's saying, I got this buddy who's really strong and he wants to try out road bike racing. So we should give him a chance. And it's like, you know, that opened the door for Sep to get on Gateway Harley Davidson. And that opened the door for him to be in a position where the team eventually did get invited to Redlands two weeks before the race for him to be in the race and then that opened the door for him to win Oak Glen and that opened the door for Rally you know you could just see how like you know all these doors open for Sep after you know at some point Sep kicked the door open on Oak, Oak Glen but like a bunch of doors kind of had to open for him to get to that point. And one of those doors was you like sending emails out to your buddies saying, you know, and you know, Hey, I have this, this friend of mine, he's talented, you know, give him a shot. And it just, it again was another reminder of how in American cycling, like, yeah, like opportunities come if you're fit and you're training and you do all this stuff. But like, there's also sort of the networking and the who, you know, and the getting in the mix and sort of, um, like, you know, you, you kind of have to do a lot to have those doors open. Yeah. I mean, have you been, have you found yourself in other situations like that with riders over the years? I mean, I know that, you know, you've worked with guys like Matteo Jorgensen and Will Barda and, you know, other guys in sort of junior U23 up and coming. And I'm really curious if you have other stories of, you know, doors that you've helped open for other people or situations where you've been able to like help other guys take the next step. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think, I mean, Nothing super specific. I mean, at the end of the day, it's always just been like, I don't know, trying to be a Rolodex for like the motivated kids. Um, and maybe more recently, it's been, you know, like a lot of American guys, maybe seeing how it's gone for guys like Mateo have really wanted to get stuck into racing in amateur teams over in Europe. So I'm always, I've always been happy to try and basically put someone in contact but yeah then it's it, like kicking the door down is probably the best phrase because it's all like it's always the ones that can kick the door down that end up being able to run with it a bit um but yeah it's it's been interesting i, I definitely feel lucky just to have been involved in that space because you learn a lot and it's it's nice to meet people on both sides of it when you look at the stories of some of these guys, your Sepkuses, Mateos, um, Will Barda, other other guys who you've seen, you know, be able to make it. What are some similar themes um, that you've come across again and again? I mean, obviously these people are talented and hardworking, but like it's a competitive sport. Everyone's pretty talented. Everyone's pretty pretty hardworking. What are some similar keys that you've seen in their pathways? That's funny. Like maybe I almost just know those guys too well in the sense that I almost think they're all so unique and different that it's almost hard to think of a similarity. I mean, it, it's almost like, okay, the similarities are sort of what you said. Yeah, there's t they're talented and hardworking and, and committed. I guess a big similarity is they, they're really 
a lot of these guys are just really good at rolling with the punches. Like they might have an idea of how they would want their career to play out or whatever, but they also don't get hung up on it. You know, like I, I feel like I've run into some younger athletes that it's kind of like if they don't get on the dream team at 19, then their dream is broken. But like Sep's a pretty cool example of like at 19, he was just trying to like kick around some mountain bike races and then like you know when he started road racing i think at the end of the day he was just doing it because he enjoyed it i don't think he was sitting there like every day saying i need to make this work how do i get to the world tour like he was kind of just chipping away at it as the stage got bigger and bigger and then it ends up that all of a sudden you're on the world tour stage and i think i've i think mateo is actually a little bit of a similar way of like I remember the, his first two years in the U23s, and then by the, his third year, he was turning professional. I mean, this, his first two years, he basically almost thought he might never be good enough to turn professional. And then even when he uh, got the offer to turn professional, he like really doubted if he was ready to take it. So some of those things were, I don't know if self-doubt is a is a tr- is pr- is the right term for the trait but also they're just like yeah these guys are just focusing on the situation they're in and doing that situation well and then as the situation evolves they evolve with it and i i think that's a a really good skill set whether whether the term is like adaptability or or just like focus on the moment or or whatever but I i think that's something you kind of need because cycling is so competitive at this moment that like you're always going to get your ass kicked by someone. And if every time that happens, you're trying to like read into where that fits in to your like grander plan, you just end up never actually making progress towards your grander plan. Cause you're like trying to check for progress reports too far along the way when you need to just be focusing on that moment you're in. And the opportunities are so few and so competitive to get to that next level, whether it be, you know, winning a junior nationals or getting on the radar for an action or a a volo or another development team or whatever. I mean, I've definitely talked to coaches at the junior U23 level and talk about how these kids feel like, you know, if they don't, they put that, they put a lot of pressure on themselves. You know, if they don't do great at junior nationals or U23 nationals, it's sort of like this feeling that the whole thing is over and it's not going to happen. And, you know, you can point to a guy like Sepp as an example of where, you know, it, it wasn't over. And yeah, you know, a lot of things had to go right for Sepp to get to that point. And Sepp had to be a pretty incredible, talented athlete and also have the right mindset. But like, it wasn't like all these doors all of a sudden were um, specifically closed, even though when you're in that situation, I'm sure it can feel like, yeah, it's definitely true. And I think there's other good examples, too. I mean, like Chad Haga, for example, I mean, he's basically a collegiate athlete that uh, chipped away at it and turned professional and is a really great, really solid, accomplished world tour professional now. Um, so, yeah, and even I think Bookwalter has a little bit of a similar story. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just I think that's maybe a common trait between some of these guys that do well i mean everyone's had their own path you know i mean you have the guys like the mcnulty's that came up kind of through that like ideal path almost that i think then people take that 
well, yeah, he was the junior national champion, and junior world champion. Then you go on to the U23s, U23 world champion medalist, and always competitive. And then you go to the world tour and this and that. And like people think, oh, well, that's just the way it works. But I think there's a lot of, uh, probably not fair to call them counter examples, but just alternative examples. I think there's a lot of ways to do it. How have you seen that pathway change in your time in the sport? I mean, I remember when I first started at Velo News back in 2004, 2005, it was like you had to be this star of the domestic racing scene and then maybe a European team or like Postal or someone would take a chance on you and take you over to Europe. Right. And it's changed so much since then. But I mean, even in the time that you've been in the sport, how have you seen the pathway change? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy because it feels like it's almost always changing and still now i mean you know now you've also got teams that are way more interested in also gravel events so like even guys are getting interest from world tour level teams for the profile they might bring in gravel events um so i think in some ways the number of pathways has widened in some ways, it's also probably narrowed a little bit. And I think some of that's a, a current moment situation because of COVID. Like, you know, there's just not a lot of racing in the U.S. So if there's not a lot of racing in the U.S., okay, that's one less or many less opportunities to put your name on the results page somewhere that maybe a European team will see or that then like the Federation, the U.S. Federation will see and give you the opportunity to go race as part of a development program in Europe. And then I think the COVID pandemic's had financial implications for say the u.s federation that's meant they can't offer as many of those development opportunities in europe so i think the pathway at the current moment looks a little bit wonky you know um so it's 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 hard to like tease out what's like been a 10-year change versus what's like a current two-year situation um but I, i think we've seen i don't know i mean I think the thing that's been positive about that is like maybe in the past more people only went to Europe if it was with USA Cycling. And I think we're seeing more and more Americans start. It's almost like a maybe like a renaissance of what people were doing 20 years ago of like more and more Americans are seeking out trying to get to Europe on their own, um, just finding a European setup uh, that will take them and give them those opportunities to race. And I think that's a maybe a harder way to do it but i also think in some ways it could lead to someone being more successful because you've just invested a lot more of your own effort in getting there and i think if you put that much more into just getting to the start line you're probably going to have a lot more motivation within the race i mean it comes with additional challenges and stuff as well but i think the athletes that are successful uh and making it to the world tour coming through paths like that also might arrive at the world tour a lot more well equipped for just some of the like life transition challenges they face at that level of like moving over to Europe and kind of figuring it out. And at the world to level on one hand, you have a lot more support, but there's also more expected of you in terms of what it means to be a professional. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, Brent mentioned that too, that it wasn't that big of a surprise that Sepp had won this Andorra stage. You know, he has relocated there. He lives there. He has a girlfriend there. He's very much ingrained himself in the culture and society. He lives there full time. And, um, you know, it's sort of that level of emotional and personal commitment that can help someone get really up for a stage where Brent was talking about, you know, the races that he found himself getting most up for still tended to be the ones in the United States. And it also speaks to, you know, your work with, um, 
Matteo Jorgensen, who we had on the podcast a year, year and a half ago, talking about his pathway to movie star. And, you know, Matteo was this kid who had, you know, good, good junior results and pretty good U23 results, but he really committed himself to like networking in his, it was either his second or his final year as a U23 to try and get it on a French team and like move to France and realizing that his development where he wanted to go on the world tour probably wasn't going to get that opportunity racing for the, an American team, like staying and racing for Jelly Belly and taking a couple trips over with the national team here and there. He was like, I need to, I need to live there. I need to race on a French team. I need to, you know, get in these French races on French roads in French culture, like day in, day out. And he pops these results at Lavenir and some of these other development races. And that's what catches the eye. And so, you know, is Matteo fit? Yeah. Does he know how to train? Sure. Is he dedicated? Absolutely. Did he like make huge physiological leaps and bounds from when he was a junior till, you know, his final years at U23? Absolutely. But really it was sort of this like mental psychological thing of committing to the culture that he felt like w- what gave him the leg up. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's like you said at the beginning, there's a, just a lot of guys that are willing to like train hard and that are talented. But like, yeah, I mean, it's a big skill set in terms of like the life skill set to really be a professional, you know, and, and also to be in Europe and be comfortable there. Because it's like, if you get the opportunity, and then you're not comfortable there, well, you're going to perform poorly. And there's kind of a probably a bit of a grace period, depending on the team you're on, and how you're going of like, okay, everyone knows it's challenging. But like that grace period usually also has a bit of a time limit on it, you know. Um, and so if you kind of use some of your U23 years of figuring that out, I mean, I think the transition is more realistic to me. Hey, I want to ask you some quick questions about some of the athletes that you've been working with. I know that, you know, you're helping some of these guys get ready for the second part of the season. Sounds like you've also been working with uh, Lawson, who was on the podcast the other week, get him ready for the uh, for the Olympics. Uh, yeah, Lawson is... Yeah, the past two weeks I've worked with him a lot. Um, yeah, so Lawson is coached by Jim Miller. Um, and then I'm in Girona, so I end up being like – I was actually talking to someone else about this because uh, they asked me, oh, do you coach Lawson? And I said, no, I, I, I help him a lot, but I almost feel like it's more of like a caddy type role in golf. Um, like at the end of the day, I just help Lawson execute the training. Um, but like for example on uh, – Saturday, I think we did 230 kilometers uh, motor pacing. So, I mean, he's he's doing the hard work, but like my back gets sore as well. Um, but yeah, Lawson's going well, and I think yeah, we're all excited for him that he's been selected. And but I think the cool thing about Lawson has been, yeah, I mean, a lot of people want to be selected for the games and be an Olympian, but he's also been super motivated. So it's not it doesn't feel at all like he just is thrilled to say he's an Olympian. Like he really has aspirations to go there and be part of a successful uh, campaign for the U S who are some of the other guys uh, that you're working on over there. And at this point of the season, you know, tour de France, you know, if they're not selected for the tour team, what does this, what does this part of the season tend to look like for guys who are building for the second half of the season? Yeah. I mean, where we are now, like coming into the second half of July, it's a, it's really important seat part, you know, like everyone kind of would have done their, uh nationals at the end of june are american guys included and then taking a bit of a pause and then so a lot of it's just like rebuilding the base um if you're not one of the guys that's at the tour and getting ready for what will be a really 
big second part of the season. Um, so now I'm at this camp. We've got a small group here, but it's actually quite nice because it keeps it really focused at altitude. Uh, we've got Hugh Carthy and Will Barta and Simon Carr and uh, one of our French guys, Julian Elferies. And yeah, so those guys all have a little bit different uh, race program in the second part of the year. But it's actually nice because it's a kind of a time of year where you've done a big first half of the season and we're all work- everyone's working hard but actually working in somewhat of a non-specific way. So it's like just come up to altitude, put in some volume, get a good base of strength under you, and then after two weeks here, we'll go home and everyone will sort of jump into their their workouts that are more specific towards what their race program is, whether that's like the Vuelta or the Tour of Poland. Um, but yeah, so it's it's been good. And are guys watching the Tour de France? Are you guys having uh, you know chats about what you're seeing on TV as well? Yeah, yeah. Everyone's. I think everyone pretty much is following the tour. And I mean, for, for us especially, uh, we're like Rigo's been really great to follow in the GC, and yeah, so he's riding a really good race, and so that's always fun for us to follow. And it's also been really fun to follow Lachlan as well. So it's kind of like we've got kind of two races we're following or I guess Lachlan's race is over. Um, but yeah, it's been cool. What are elements from this race that like have really sort of seized the social element of the guys that you're working with? Are there, uh, you know, other than the obvious of, you know, teammates and Rigo and stuff like that, are there uh, parts of this tour that like guys seem to be talking about more than others? Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, I feel like in some ways you're just always talking about the couple of days you're in or that the race is in, but I mean, for me, a big thing that I was talking about and a lot of guys I think were talking about was just how hectic the first week was, you know? I mean, like, it's one of those things where I think by the power files, it may not have looked that hectic. But when you're watching the TV and seeing the first three days just being mass pileups and then straight into a very cold and rainy weekend on the Alps, it was one of those things where I think it was interesting because it's so easy and current day sport to be really numerical about things but just watching that you just have to say oh i mean clearly this is a this is like a high stress race you know and i think it kind of adds con like a sort of a more anecdotal context to what we might see like in a role like mine from the numbers and power files and stuff that i think is super important um so yeah it's it's been interesting but i think yeah as the tours have gone on it's I mean, it's been a really exciting race and yeah, hard and breakaways and yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's also that context that's good to, you know, be able to look at some of the performances and say, well, you know, it's been really hard. There's been crashes. There's been, you know, rain and bad weather. And, you know, yeah, there's going to be maybe bigger time gaps than you might otherwise see. And I think a lot of people have been sort of trying to find numbers or look at, you know, analytically at time gaps and stuff like that and scratch their heads. And, you know, I also think this Tour de France, while it may get lost in history 20 years from now, something to keep in mind is exactly what you said, like how completely insane that uh, opening week was. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I think... In some ways, last year, we were seeing like faster performances on the climbs from a numerical perspective. But like, I think it was also quite a calmer first week, you know, like I was thinking about it, it like, it was a really hard parkour last year, one of the hilliest Tour de France's ever. But in some ways, I think for the GC guys that are the ones that get battled, like beat around and then have to be responsible for putting up the climbing records that people then criticize or praise... Like it was actually probably a smoother start to the tour for them because it's just hillier and guys get dropped and then there's less chaos to deal with. 
Whereas like here, yeah, maybe you look at the power file and it just looks fine. But then, yeah, seeing people lying all over the road and all these punchy finishes where you have to be concerned about losing 15 seconds here, 15 seconds there. Like that's quite a bit different than five totally flat sprint stages with no wind and mid uh, mid 70s temperature and you just kind of cruise it in and then hit the first mountaintop and it's just a ripping time kind of thing so yeah <laughs> that sounds like a, a kind of a bike ride i want to go on that sounds very very nice nate uh well nate hey i really appreciate you setting some time aside for us today that's all i got for you it's nate wilson performance manager for EF Education Nippo and a uh, veteran coach in the American cycling scene. Uh, thanks so much, Nate. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. 